A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, this is Emma, production and experience director at the Webby Awards. You might remember me from the old ads, but I'm back. Are you as impressed by the work of the Webby winners as we are? The work honored at the Webby Awards is changing the future of the internet, and you can have access to all the deets behind it. Sign up to the Webby Gallery and Index to uncover insights, inspiration, and trends for your work or just for fun. You'll get the ability to discover innovative projects from around the world that are awesome online, a database of credits to check out who made all that groundbreaking digital work, Trends and insights not available outside of our database, including major categories like fashion, sports, and social, and the advanced power of search. So if you're ahead of us and want to find something we didn't mention, you can do that too. Make sure you're in the know and sign up for free at the top of our page at webbyawards.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Let's change the world together. We are all one people. Love beats hate every time. Everyone's a writer. Just start. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce my next guest who is doing incredibly important work to have honest conversations on anti-Blackness and systemic oppression in the United States. M.K. Asante is a filmmaker, scholar, professor, and author of his memoir, Buck. He's also the host of two Snap original docuseries, Free Tuition with M.K. Asante and Wild Black with M.K. Asante. The latter is a raw, honest exploration of what it means to be young, gifted, and Black in the United States. M.K. is also a professor who's on a mission to combat the failings of the U.S. educational system and give young students the real tools they need to have accurate discussions about race and racism. He does this by meeting young people where they are on the internet and telling their stories. M.K. and I covered a lot on our conversation. He's passionate about how our education model needs to change so that it doesn't limit self-expression for Black youth and instead gives them autonomy and intellectual freedom so they can thrive. We also talk about how recordings of racist incidents through cell phone and technology has sparked honest discussions about race in the United States, and how he tries to tell those stories and more with his original shows on Snapchat. But first, we really dive into his struggles growing up in the Philadelphia school system during the 1990s after his family moved back from Zimbabwe shortly after the country gained its independence. Shona and English were the first two languages that I was around. And then when I was about three, we moved from Zimbabwe to, to, to Buffalo and then to Philly. And ultimately we settled in Philly. So I grew up in Philly. Philly is home for me, even though Zimbabwe is kind of a further home, another sense of home for me for sure. And I've been back there and I have a very you know strong connection with the continent of Africa in general, but Zimbabwe specifically. But Philadelphia is really kind of the city that I would say probably had the most influence over defining who I who I am now. The city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. So I grew up in Philly and, you know, Buck is my memoir. And it's about growing up in Philly. It doesn't really deal with 
Zimbabwe. It deals with coming of age in Philly in the 90s. So around the time when the internet was starting, or at least available to, you know, consumers in, in some sense, even though the consumption was was slow. <laughs> it took a long time for things to, to, to yeah. pop to low. But but yeah, you know, so I grew up in the 90s and it was a, just, you know, hip hop, Afrocentricity, which my, my father coined that term, the term Afrocentricity. Like I said, there was a lot going on in, in my household. There was a lot going on in my city, in my neighborhood. And so Buck is an expression of all of that <laughs> in a lot of ways. I named it Buck because I wanted a title that was short, but that was long. <laughs> because to me, Buck, it means so many things, right? Young Buck, Buck Wild, Buck Shots, Buck Town, Slave Buck, Black Buck, Make Buck, Buck Now. Those are just some examples of, you know, all the different ways that Buck is is used and the ways that I see Buck being used, but there's so many, so many more. And so Buck really, to me, encompassed my story, my journey. You know, I talked about my parents and at the same time that they were creating, you know, Afrocentricity and the same time that my mom was dancing, you know, she was also struggling with depression and they were also struggling with their own relationship. And my brother was also incarcerated. And so all of this was happening at the same time. And so it, it had a very powerful impact on my consciousness and who who I was and who I became and who I wanted to be and, and all of that. I've heard you talk before also that, you know, there was times during that period where I think as you, I think I heard you say um, you were doing all the things that the parents out there wouldn't want be wanting their kids to be doing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. And it's funny because I got a son and he's nine. He'll hear me talk, you know, I got my, I got my, all my tattoos at like 13 years old. So yeah. my, it, it, you know, my son who, who, grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, you know, to, to him, it's like really difficult for him to comprehend how I got tattoos at 13 because in not just his world, but in most people's world, you know, since coming from Philly in the 90s, you know, that isn't normal, but it was normal to me. All my friends were 13. We all had were tatted up in the same way. We had the same tat, you know, and it was completely normal. So those kinds of things were normal. My parents didn't know, obviously, about the tats. We were exposed to drugs and sex and all of this stuff at a super young age. And we were just a part of the the chaos of the city. And it was intoxicating to us. It was it's the same intoxicating force that, you know, sent my brother to, to the penitentiary. You know, um, it was something that we were drawn to speaking for, you know, me personally and also my brother, there are others who were not drawn to it, but were forced into it um, in, in other ways, in some ways or another. But I think it was something we were drawn to, um, you know, me and my brother. And the streets definitely captivated us. And definitely, you know, speaking in terms of my brother, robbed him of many years. And I, I was I was able to to see that. And learn from that as well, you know, um, which was difficult. But yeah, you know, I got kicked out of, I mean, I'm a, prof I'm a professor now. Um, and I've been a tenured professor for, for years. But, you know, uh, when I was growing up, education, my relationship with school was 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 really, uh, you know, 
confrontational, I guess, um, and contentious. Uh, I, I got kicked out of numerous schools and, you know, had teachers definitely uh, <laughs> say things that showed that they had very little confidence in, in my intellect and my abilities. Ultimately, I found a place, I found a home, I found education, I found a, a school environment that even worked for me that was alternative. And so I write about that as well in the memoir because that's one of the things that that really helped me and, and changed my life. I wanted to write a book where I didn't hold back. I, w- I wasn't going to write the book if I, if I wasn't real and if I, if I wasn't being real about my experiences. So, you know, for some people, the things that they read in Buck it's the first time they've ever read about these things at all or read about a young person engaged in these things, you know, someone that's just 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, and they, it's a completely new world. But like I said, for me and for a lot of other people right now, even, you know, of course, right now, this is just the reality. And so I think it's important to 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 write in a way that's authentic and real and and, you know, or else what are we doing? Uh, one of thing I want to touch on there was and, and mentioned as you did was that, you know, now you, you're a college professor and have been so for a while. You didn't have the best experience with school starting out. What have you like looking back? Um, what have you learned about the way schools were organized and maybe are still organized today that are not necessarily super productive for everybody? And, and how have you taken those lessons and, and use them in the way that you're teaching young people today? You know, I mean, I went to like lots of different school environments. And so that was interesting. I spent time in Philadelphia public schools and middle school and high school. So I was in the pub and then I was, I experienced a friend school in Philadelphia, which I actually, I call it foes. <laughs> you call it what? The, foes? Foes in the book. Yeah, it's supposed to be friends, but I call it foes because, you know, that was my experience. But um, but yeah, so I went to a, I went to foes and then I also and then I went to this alternative school. And that to me, you know, that environment, it was so different and, and radically different than any kind of school experience I'd ever been to. Um, it wasn't about rote memorization and regurgitation. You know, it wasn't about kind of systematically just following, you know, rules or, you know, it, it was about freedom of expression. It was about freedom of, it was about intellectual freedom. It was about, you know, kind of finding who who you are. You know, it was about kind of really deconstructing how you learn and and what it is that makes you tick and, and all these things. It was about autonomy. You know, I remember when I got to this school, they told me, they said, if you don't want to come, you don't have to. All you got to do is call out like, like a job basically. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, Oh my God, I'm, I'm never coming. I told, I told all my homies, I'm like, yo, there's no way I'm going ever. Like I'm never going. And I never did that. I never called out. And it was the craziest thing because when they told it to me, in my mind, I was immediately like, oh my God, <laughs> this is great. This is, I'm running with this. Yeah. Um, and I had already planned out all the things I was going to be doing with my time. But the reality is the, the kind of freedom that they gave young people was the kind of freedom that you need to really learn and to really find out who you are and what you want and 
you know, it's it's very powerful and it's empowering. And when you're given responsibility and autonomy like that, it, it, it's funny. Again, your first instinct might be to abuse it or to, you know, never come, right? But ultimately, once that responsibility settles in, I think adults would be really pleasantly surprised with the decisions that young people make when they actually have responsibility and decisions to make. And so, like I said, I, I never called out, even though that was an option. And, and up until that point, I had hated school. So, mm. you know, you would think, but but again, uh, that autonomy was important. So that's something I would I would stress is autonomy, freedom, intellectual freedom, you know, the ability to to challenge ideas. I remember at this alternative school, you could, you, you know, you could sit down, you could lay down in class, you could do whatever you want. You could literally, it seemed, it seemed to me as a child, you could do whatever you wanted. I mean, if you wanted to lay down, nobody was going to tell you, sit up. But the reality is, as a young person, you realize you don't want to lay down. That's not really an effective way to like engage or to listen. So you find yourself sitting up, not because you're being forced to, but because that just makes sense. I mean, we were kind of laughing there, but like you could have told all your friends you were going to call out and then you never did. And it's kind of, it's kind <laughs> of funny, um, but it's also, it's a big, it's like pretty serious and a big turning point and clearly a pretty meaningful thing in your life too. Like, was there some moment or some person or some, you know what I mean? Like, what was the, what was the shift other than just, they gave you the the freedom or is that what it was? There were there were a couple different moments. I'll talk about one that's in the book, but there, well, there are a couple in the book too. You know, I had an Uncle Howard that passed away, lived in Texas. One of my good friends from Philadelphia, um, he got into some trouble, and we we drove to Texas. I was I was fifteen or sixteen, and um, my friend was around the same age. We didn't there was no license. I mean, it, this was completely no internet. I remember well there was internet, but there was no no smartphones and no GPS, really. The way you had to do it was you had to print out the directions from MapQuest, you know what right, I mean? Right, and, right. And, and we had a map, you know what I mean? So yeah. my uncle Howard was, you know, very influential on that trip. He, you know, he told me, he said, there's a war going on and every person and, you know, there's two wolves. One wolf is jealousy and envy and hatred and war, negativity, the other, wolf is love and positivity and you know good vibrations and peace and all that he said and they're at war and he, and he said you know the one that wins is the one that you feed and i mm. thought that was so wise i think that was a native american proverb or something that he was like paraphrasing but i thought that was so wise and he was a very influential person on me just his spirit my parents were always influential in a way, but what happened was I just didn't listen to them. So at some point, some of the things that they were saying to me for years started to like click, but for a long time, none of it clicked. Um, and so there were other people that kind of would step in. There was a teacher that I had at that alternative school that really kind of had a big impact with her creative writing class. I write about the blank page in my book, you know, blank page saved me, America enraged me. Then that John paid me, new slaves, old slavery. My grandma told me the streets far from holy. Now I'm lonely, my homies' bodies is holy. So this teacher 
puts blank pieces of paper in front of all of us and tells us to write. It just tells us, just write. And my experience in school at this point is, like I said, is just memorization, regurgitation. So I'm just kind of sitting there. She comes over to me. She's like, I want you to write. I'm like, well, what do you want me to write? And she's like, write anything you want. Like, anything I want. So she's like, yeah, write what you want. Write what you feel, you know? And I don't even believe her because... This isn't my experience up until this point with, with teachers, with authority, you know, they might say they want you to write whatever you want to write, but as soon as you write what you really want to write, then, you know, it's going to be a problem. You're, you're problem. thinking there's some sort of like gotcha, yeah, like this gotcha a, thing here. This, yeah. this, is, this is a trap. I'm from Philly. Yeah. This is a setup. You know right, what I mean? Right. So anyway, she's like, nah, just write whatever you want to write. So first thing I write is fuck school, you know, really proud big letters, you know, bold, like, fuck this place. I really don't like it. So fuck school. I'm thinking she's going to see that, kick me out, which is fine with me because in my mind, you know, I've already got my my day plan. And so she looks at it and she says, uh, good. Now keep going. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was, that was the guy, that was a trap. See, it was a setup. And the the setup, but it wasn't a, a bad setup. It was a great setup because it forced me and it challenged me to think about, well, damn, what else do I have to say? At that point, I was like, that's all I had. <laughs> She's like, what else? I'm like, you got me. I mean, that's pretty much where I was at with it. <laughs> uh, end of sentence. So she forced me to think about what else I wanted to say. So it was interesting for me and that inspired me, you know, to want to tell stories and to want to write and to, you know, I remember my dad said, you know, you're going to be a writer, you got to read. And so then starting to read and become a reader and starting to understand the importance of language and words and, you know, how we communicate and limiting vocabulary becomes, you know, limiting thoughts. And so all this became very powerful to me as, as ideas. And I felt like I had a lot of time that I had to make up for because, like I said, the early part of my education, I guess starting in around sixth grade, I think that's where it starts with, with a lot of black boys. And I talked to my one of my teachers from Foes <laughs> the other day. She's at a different school now, and I spoke at her new school, and she I had her in third grade. And when I had her, I was wonderful. She was wonderful. Everything was was great. But she talked about even back then about how, you know, white teachers really started to kind of look at me. You know, she would have to talk to them and tell them, look, he's fine. He's got a lot of energy. This is, you know, this is this is how he is. I mean, you're you know, but they started to already, she said, they started to create a an idea about who I was and about and 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 make me a threat when I was a child and to start thinking about me in, in a way that was threatening or whatever. And so anyway, so she, she talked about that the other day. And I thought that was really powerful, but um, I think for a lot of black boys, when, you know, we talk to teachers um, and educators, they'll, they'll admit, or they'll say that, you know, research has shown that around that age is when, and even the criminal justice system begins to look at black boys as not children. They don't see them as children or, or little boys. They see them as potential threats or potential predators or, or people that, you know, should be incarcerated or 
maimed or killed or, or, or hung. And that sounds extreme, but this is our history in America. They've been hanging, hanging children and killing children since 1619. It's funny you said earlier that it, it you felt like you had time to make up. It seems like you definitely made it up. You became like the youngest tenured professor, I think, in the United States pretty quickly at the age of like 26 or something like that. Yeah, I don't 20, remember. 27? Close yeah. enough. Yeah. I think oh, it was like 20. I think it was like 25, but I'm not counting. Yeah. So, and, <laughs> you know, you've and tons of creative projects, but just because we're on this topic, it seems like a good segue here. You also you have a Snapchat show that's out recently. It's called Wild Wild Black with MK Asante. And I think to some extent, you're, the show is really about some of the issues you're, you're talking about right now. Maybe some of the ways that those teachers were looking at, you know, a sixth grader back then. And it's really about the way that society looks at, at Black people today still, right? And how we're all getting, to the extent we choose to tune in, so to speak, we're all finally, all the rest of us who aren't Black are finally getting a of you into what that actually looks like, as opposed to just hearing stories about it. Yeah, I think absolutely. Thanks for that question. I mean, you know, I've got two shows on Snap right now, Free Tuition with MK Asante and Wild Black with MK Asante. And they both tackle, you know, important social issues, you know, that affect youth. And my whole thing is like meet youth where they are. And so Snap is a really powerful platform because you know, as you know, I think it's like 90% of, you know, 13 to 23 year olds or something like that are on Snap. And there's just a, a lot of stories being told by storytellers. And when I say storytellers, I'm talking about just your kids or, you know, your nieces or your nephews. Everyone is a storyteller on Snap. But then you had these Snap originals, these shows that are produced by Snap creators with the intention of telling very specific stories, you know, unique stories. And so Wild Black was the first show that we created. And it's Wild Black with MK Asante and it explores what it means to be young, gifted and black in America. You know, we know that song, Nina Simone, you know, to be young, gifted and black, but there's so much to that. And so in the first season of Wild Black, I mean, we see what's happened now in like in 2020, but the first season of Wild Black came out in 2019. and so many of the issues that are obviously, uh, you know, that we're talking about now, we were exposing them then, you know, we were showing the police brutality, all, all the things that, that were, that are on the forefront right now, as far as politics in America. But we wanted to show people, you know, what it means to be young and black in America. And we wanted to empower young black people and young people of color. And we wanted to educate young black people and young white kids and everyone else. Um, because so much of what we see to me is just lack of education. People don't know. We're not all learning the same stuff, history, right? We're not all learning, you know, what we should about each other, about where we came from and how this country was created and what the laws were. And so, you know, and, and how wealth works and how, economies work and how generational wealth is created and passed down. I mean, none of this is really taught. And so I've had some really enlightening conversations with young people who, you know, as long as it's not like a Russian troll or whatever, I, I don't respond with any kind of hostility or whatever. I respond with really understanding that we all really aren't necessarily educated on these issues. And um, I was fortunate to to be in an environment growing up where 
I was educated on these things very early on and also sought, sought it out and have been seeking it out my entire life and have been studying it my entire life. And so, you know, I find those conversations on Snap to be really powerful, but we reach millions of, of young people on both shows, you know, every week and they deal, you know, the shows deal with important issues to, to young people in general. I think one of the things, you know, for me with Wild Black is like, I'm obviously African-American. The show is, you know, created by African-American producers and it's a show that tells African-American stories, but one thing that is important is racism is not an African-American problem. Um, it's something that African-Americans deal with and have been dealing with since 1526 or 1619, depending on where you put that number. But, you know, the reality is so much of this conversation about racism actually needs to be had by white people. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, to me, white people need to be having the conversation about racism. It's not a black problem. So it just affects black people. I mean, in the show, you... I mean, I think there's a specific point is to show a lot, lots and lots of ways that black people experience the police via the video that's taken firsthand as opposed to just telling people. And, I, you know, I, that's by and large video that white people need to watch. And even the video, it may not mean anything, meaning that, you know, you may have a video that shows, look, this man was unarmed, he was shot. Yeah, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean justice. That doesn't necessarily mean the, the, the police right. officer will be reprimanded for that. Yeah. In fact, the police officer that killed Breonna Taylor, one of them is suing Breonna Taylor's uh boyfriend. I mean, this is the this is where we live. And so, you know, growing up as a as a young black boy, you know, the way we learn about the police and the way we interact with them and first experiences with the police were all traumatic. Every single experience I've ever had with the police growing up was traumatic. Never had a, a regular moment where they just said, hey, everything okay? It was always traumatic. It was always hostile. There was always a weapon drawn. So, you know, that was my experience. And I'm not alone, obviously, you know. Um, and I think what technology, I mean, technology has been such an important part of, you know, my life, obviously all of our lives, what I've seen with, you know, the advent of the cell phone and particularly that camera on the phone, an internet theme that I've seen is basically accountability. Criminals like to move in silence, like to do things in the dark, you know, people who are doing the wrong thing, they like to do things when no one's looking. And I think what, what happens, you know, the reason why the Roddy King video, which was important to my childhood, um, was so important, it was because it was on film. 
I mean, right. everyone knows that the cops are beating the shit out of people every day, but we just don't have it on tape. And so when you have the, the footage, it's like, oh, my God. And then people, there's a riot because how does one even process what they're seeing? Dr. Martin Luther King said rioting is the language of the unheard. I mean, is, how do you express what you're seeing in, in any kind of normal way? What you're seeing is not normal. So the reaction isn't normal. So I've seen how the the cell phone and now body cameras, dash cams have all really led to more knowledge and more conversation about the interactions with the police. And I, I think it I think we are moving in a more positive direction, honestly, even though it's it's it doesn't seem like it all the time. The conversations that are being had now about policing, about mental health, about dealing with people with mental health issues, you know, about police training, about um, whether people are talking about, you know, um, defunding police, which they've been defunding education for years. So I think it's really about refunding education and just shifting funds. But these conversations weren't being had when I was growing up. So technology is not going to erase racism. But technology can expose racism in a way that forces us to really ask ourselves, who are we? Who are the children that we're trying to raise? What kind of society are we trying to build? It it really makes you ask questions of yourself when you can watch a video. And and how do you how do you react? Is that video? Is that wrong to you? Is that justified? How do it makes you really get in tune with who you are? And I think that can make us better. I mean, some of the, some of the stories that you share in the show in the video from them are, you know, it's like hard. Some of it's hard to watch. Some of it's super poignant. Some of it's also, and I think you even say this in the show, some of it's almost funny. It's not funny, but it's almost funny because it's just like so ironic. And I just, I think it's so ridiculous. Yeah, like I think of the story you have. It's actually in the, I think it's in the trailer too. I think it's in one of the first episodes. It's Joel Stallworth is a guy who was a USA track and field, like the actual USA national track and field team sponsored by Nike. Like guy wore Nike shoes running around racetracks for the USA and goes into a Nike store in Santa Monica with his family and buys like a $12 basketball and gets profiled and accused of not buying this basketball from a Nike store that he was actually, I mean, you, yeah. you can't help when you watch it. You're like, can't, you're kind can't of even, like, it's can't even make it up. Can't even make it yeah. up. And then, then, and this is how they, and this is, this, you know, again, these are the traps. And as a black, you know, when you're a black boy, you, you're, you're taught this literally for, I was taught this right by, by elders that they're going to, they're going to try to trap you, right? So you're talking to Joel Stallworth, right? He's saying, look, I paid for the basketball, right? And he's, of course, upset because, you know, he's being harassed by the cops and by the woman. So he says, look, I paid for the basketball. And then what she says is, you're making me uncomfortable. And then the cop says to Joel, you're making her uncomfortable, you know? And it's like, it's mind-blowing because it's like, yeah. you're her, like, she's... Like it's, it's it's you can't even put it into words, and so we saw it with the Central Park video uh, in New York, similar video. Yeah, you know, with the bird watcher from Harvard. You know, I mean, you this is you know part of when I say it, it's almost funny, right? It's like 
you know, even in that situation, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> this dude is a bird watcher from Harvard. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. and and look at what's happening to him and, and how she so imagine what's happening to my homies in North Philly. Imagine, yeah. okay? Yeah. Who don't have that background. And and it shouldn't happen to anyone. Of course not. But like what but the point is, even this guy, this guy. I don't even know anyone like that. You know what I mean? Um, and and he's going through it. And so it just shows you, I mean, Henry Louis Gates, you know, going into his own home in Boston. I mean, what, what racism shows you is no matter how much money you have or status, whatever it, it may be. And we also saw that when Obama was president, the kinds of things that, you know, we heard being said about him. And I mean, you know, his, his family, I mean, these things, it just shows you the, the the vicious, ruthless nature of of racism and, and how it really is. Uh, uh, we talk about the pandemic that we're currently in, but we've been really in a in a different kind of pandemic where this disease of racism and hatred has, you know, been with us for hundreds of years and really destroyed so many lives unnecessarily, millions of lives. I mean, it seems like the some of the technology is a is a positive overall step right it's like it's giving people who want to see a direct line into seeing it happen as opposed to just hearing stories about it and to your point that like the vid- you know the video means everything and it means everything because people can't really understand it until they see it even if they hear about it like what is the next or what else is out there from like an internet or social media perspective or technology perspective that can like help us build upon this new tool, right? So that it's the the next step beyond outrage to to change. And it's, you know, I know it's a it's a journey and it's a progress and it's it's small steps along the way, but like how do you think about that? That's a, a great question. I for me, I think about it in the sense that the technology can't do the work for us, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. It's like even, you know, I'm a petroleum professor at Morgan and you know, uh, Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been a professor there for years now, and uh, I love it. I love it. It's a great HBCU, a great tradition. I love teaching. Um, and but it's fascinating to me. You know, sometimes when students, you know, when they when they ask you a question or when they when they don't use use the power of the internet, number one, right? Is that first of all, it's kind of like even with uh, our brains, right? We're only using a, a small percentage of, of our brain, right? I feel like we're only using a small percentage of the internet sometimes. So even though we have all this knowledge at our disposal, you know, we're only going to the same few sites and, you know, interacting with it in a very basic way, you know, and not really tapping into its potential. So I think so much of the internet is untapped in terms of what it could be for all of us in terms of like knowledge and, and everything. I also think that the the real work has to be done on a human level. It's not technology, it's human beings. And so at the end of the day, technology can help expose these things, can help bring us together, but we have to care. We have to love one another. We have to care for each other. You know, there's a, a powerful technology called Ubuntu. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. And Ubuntu is an African concept, you know, um, and the concept is I am because we are that I can't be who I am I ought to be unless you are who you ought to be. And that we're all in this, you know, 
labyrinth of interconnectivity. And so it's important to take care of each other. You know, like I said, I could never have imagined this when I did my first Google search in 1990, whatever. Just where we are now is is such a beautiful place, but it's also such a sad place, honestly. Yeah. 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 It's a lot worse in some ways. And I mean, it's also a lot better, but there's, there's, there's some new stuff and maybe it's not really even new. It's just newly visible, uh, in these past few years on the internet that, you know, it's, it's sort of not the promise that it, well, it's at least it's clouding the promise that it was back then. But that, but that's, not it could be. but that's where we come into play. And, and I say, we, I mean, humanity, I mean, again, we can create very powerful technologies and, and tools. We have the ability to do that. And we've always had the ability to do that as societies. At some point, it's what are you doing with that technology? And so yeah. I think, you know, and every technology has this potential. You know, you can use gunpowder to make fireworks or you could use it, you know, in, in producing weapons. So are you celebrating something to make fireworks or are you, you know, trying to destroy and, and kill people. It, the, the the technology is there regardless of how it's going to be utilized. So I think that's where we come into play. We have to develop. The technology is way, way beyond where we are. George Carlin used to talk about, you know, save the planet. We haven't even figured out how to take care of each other. <laughs> like now we want to save the planet, he was saying, you know, because Again, we haven't even figured out how to just be respectful to one another. I just, I come back to what you said at the top there that your uncle told you the the one that we feed is the one that wins or the one that wins exactly. is the one that we feed, right? Yep. It's pretty smart. MK, thanks for joining us on the Webby Podcast, man. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Man, I appreciate you, man. Let's, you know, let's, let's feed the right spirits and the right wolves. Thank you to MK Asante for coming on the Webby Podcast and talking with me. MK is doing really important work with the show while black with MK Asante on Snap. You can catch episodes directly on the platform or as well on YouTube. Also make sure you pick up a copy of his memoir, Buck. If you like the Webby Podcast and want to support it, leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really like it and you want to make my mom happy, leave us a review. If you are making great stuff on the internet, I hope you won't forget to enter. Our final deadline is coming up Friday, December 18th. For information on that and other information on the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com. And on most social platforms at the Webby Awards. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Taylor Griffin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our editor is Terrence Brosnan. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a moon juice shot after lunch. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.